Hello everyone and welcome back to Backyard Geology Canada Edition. I am your host Serena, back again for another bonus episode. Check out episode 1 of this season of Backyard Geology based in St. John's, Newfoundland to learn about Mistaken Point and the exciting fossils it hosts. Down the coast from St. John's, Newfoundland lies Mistaken Point, home to fossils of Ediacaran biota and some of the first large life forms. This community of organisms tells us so much about the Ediacaran period and what the seafloor may have looked like at the tail end of the Precambrian period. Today I am joined by graduate student, fossil enthusiast, and fellow traveling geologist team member Noelle Lynn in St. John's, Newfoundland. Hi, Noelle. Hello. The more I learn about geology, the more I have come to realize that fossils are all around us. How much would you say you love fossils? I love them a lot, and they will always have a special place in my heart. That's great to hear. Me too. I wanted to talk to you today because you have studied paleoenvironmental reconstruction and have used fossils to do this. In the case of Mistaken Point, the fossils preserved there provide a fairly rare window into a Precambrian community, which is used to do some of this paleoenvironmental reconstruction that I touched on in the first episode, based in St. John's. Today, I hope to dive deep into how we use fossils like those at Mistaken Point to tell Earth's history, and I think you're just the guest to help me out with this. Would you please introduce yourself to listeners? Yeah. Hi, I'm Noelle. Um, I am a geologist, and I did my undergrad my undergrad degree at Queen's University in geology and now I live here in St. John's and I'm doing my I'm doing my master's degree in geology with a focus on geochemistry. Um, I live here with my cat so if you're meowing that it's just moose. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. Cats are always welcome on podcasts. So I know back at Queen's you worked on paleoenvironmental reconstruction using fossils. Can you give a definition to listeners of paleoenvironmental reconstruction and what that looks like? So we use different techniques in geology to look at um, what the environment would have looked like at the time of deposition. So if you think about the ocean right now, um, sand is constantly moving around. It's soft. It's not a rock yet. And it's, it's recording a record as we speak. And so we're basically looking at what it would have looked like in the rock at time of deposition. So when the rock was still soft. So we can use um, we can use stuff like fossils and geochemistry and sedimentary structures to look at at conditions from time of deposition, such as salinity, such as if it was warm or cold, such as um, wave wave energy, and basically look at at how the rock formed to be what it is. And that just gives us a deeper understanding of what we're looking at. So you're using the hints that are the evidence that is available on today's earth to reconstruct the past environments over, you know, earth's extensive history. Yes. So what is your main area of research now at Memorial University? So now I'm looking at the geochemical side of things. When I was back at Queens, I mainly used fossils and sedimentary structures, but now I'm looking at the geochemistry. So my research project is on shales from offshore Nova Scotia. Um, and it's straddling the Jurassic Cretaceous boundary, which, as I guess most people know, is when the dinosaurs were around. And we're basically looking at 
the geochemical changes across the boundary, um, what the conditions were like at time of deposition, like I was talking about. So we're looking at um, whether or not the water was oxygenated and we can divide that into oxic, which means quite oxygenated, suboxic, which is not very oxygenated, and then anoxic ferruginous, which means no oxygen and iron rich, and eusinic, which is no oxygen and sulfur rich. So that's one part of it. And then we're also looking at terrigenous input, which basically means what is eroding on land to provide the source of sediment for what we're looking at. And then we're also looking at bioproductivity. So was there life at the time of this deposition in my region? And if so, what can we deduce from the geochemical signatures? When sediment is depositing in the ocean, it records the geochemical signatures of the of the seawater around it. So the trace element and the isotopic values are that of the water around it. So we're basically doing the geochemical test on the sediment to look at the conditions of the water from time of deposition. Right. So that's what you're working on now. So you've shifted more from fossils to sort of more the hardcore geochemistry side of things. Yes, exactly. But the common thread throughout all of that is the paleoenvironment reconstruction. Mm-hmm. It's no secret to listeners that us on the traveling geologist team are all geochemists. So <laughs> oftentimes these discussions and podcasts that I record always loop in geochemistry. So personally, I'm always happy to talk about it, though. <laughs> Let's talk more about fossils and fossil preservation. Why are there so few areas in the world where fossils like the soft-bodied organisms at Mistaken Point are preserved? Um, Like you said, they are soft-bodied. So I guess a more common, when people say fossil, I guess the common person thinks of dinosaurs. And I think that's a good place to start for this sort of thing. So with dinosaurs, we all know that like the big bones, like the the T-Rex recreations in the museum, that sort of thing is is what people normally think about when it comes to fossils. Um, And I know there's a lot of talk in the scientific community about the possibility of dinosaurs actually having feathers and not looking like the reptiles in Jurassic Park, but more like birds because they are closely related to birds. And the reason that for so long we thought that they looked like reptiles is because there's no feathers in the fossil record. And it's because it's a feather. Like if you if you look at a bird and a bird's feather, you're never really going to see that. You're never really going to see that preserved in a rock unless you have really specific conditions. And that's exactly what happened at Mistaken Point and pretty much anywhere where there are Ediacaran fossils. Um, back when Ediacaran fossils were alive, there, were no, there was no such thing as hard-bodied parts. There were no exoskeletons. There were no vertebrates or anything like that. It was all soft-bodied creatures, much like a jellyfish that you would see in modern day. The reason that Mistaken Point is so well preserved is because of rapid burial, which is one of the few preservation methods that will allow us to see soft-bodied organisms preserved in the rock record. So in the case of Mistaken Point, I believe there was quite a large uh, volcanic eruption that produced a lot of volcanic ash and basically buried alive all of those organisms in life position, in situ, where they were living. So that's why we are able to see that at Mistaken Point. And that's also why they're so useful to people who study this time period, because they are in situ, as you said. Yeah, exactly. They're in situ and they're so rare. Like we just talked about, it's pretty rare to see that kind of rapid burial. Um, There's a couple other ways that you can get soft-bodied organisms preserved or in situ preservation like that. But yeah, rapid burial is a really nice way to kind of freeze everything in time. 
I liked what you mentioned about like, it's like preserving a jellyfish, like something that, you know, is like just so soft and squishy for lack of a better term. Yeah. It's like preserving, it's like preserving hair or feathers or skin flesh. Even when you dig up, like, even when they dig up stuff in, I don't know, for example, in Egypt, when they go to the the tombs and they and they dig up and they excavate yeah that's the one thank you (laughs) when they excavate even human remains all you get is the skeletons and that's what we're used to seeing but yeah soft body preservation is its own beast and it sheds a lot of light on on the earth's history right so the fossils and the organisms themselves weren't necessarily rare it's just having them preserved you know 550 million years later that is rare yeah exactly I actually don't think those would have been very rare at all at the time because there were there were no hard-bodied organ there were no exoskeleton like there were no trilobites or anything nothing with hard bodies that could compete with them and kill them. No, you're you're right about them probably not being terribly rare based on the reading that I've done because there wasn't much predation happening. These are things that didn't move. They filtered uh, nutrients out of the water column, so like there wasn't much competition happening. They just kind of hung out on the seafloor yeah there was no predation at the time because there were no yeah there were no hard-bodied organisms to to hunt them so they were just hanging out this is of course for listeners this is of course just speculation from two geology students but just so you know in geology (laughs) just so you know the the thought process that's happening here between noelle and myself So I know we already touched on paleoenvironmental reconstruction, but let's dive into that into more detail. How are fossils used specifically in paleoenvironmental reconstruction? And can you give any examples from your research? Yeah, so one of the most important things of, of you, one of the most important uses of fossils in geology is looking at time, constraining time. So we have what are called indicator fossils that basically they, they, we know exactly when they evolved and exactly when they went extinct. And oftentimes those indicator fossils are only present for one epoch, which is a subdivision of a period. So a period is like the Jurassic or the Cretaceous or the Cambrian, those big overarching periods. But within those, there are multiple epochs. Um, so sometimes it'll be one epoch, sometimes it'll be a couple epochs, sometimes it'll be one period. And so indicator fossils really help us to look at exactly what what the time scale was like, and it allows us to date things quite accurately. So if you, if you took a graptolite, which essentially looks like a tiny little pencil marking, if you were to take a pencil and draw a line one centimeter long in a rock, that's kind of what a graptolite looks like in the fossil record. There are many types of graptolites. They don't all look like that, but yeah, basically a graptolite, which is a type of fossil, um, they're really good biostratigraphic markers because they evolved and, and went extinct so rapidly. There are so many different types, so many different species, and they evolve and, and die out so rapidly. So we know exactly how old a unit is if it has this specific type of graptolite, because we know when that graptolite evolved. We know when it went extinct. So if it shows up in the record, that means that it had to be within the time period that this graptolite was alive. So that's a really good application. Um, and it helps, again, like I said, to constrain the paleo environment, because knowing the time you know, in the age of the rock is really important in creating that big picture. Um, we can also use fossils to look at the conditions as, as if you were swimming in the water right now. You can look at like 
is it bright out or is it not? Um, are you in salt water or are you in fresh water? Are you on a wavy beach or are you in a lagoon where there's not as many waves or are you um, in kind of almost stagnant water as in not a ton of wave action? And we can use fossils for all those sort of things. So for lighting, um, we can look at organisms that photosynthesize. So a lot of corals, not all corals for the, not all corals photosynthesize, but a vast majority of them do and did in the past. So for example, if you see, um, if you know you can identify this type of coral and you know that it, it needed to photosynthesize, or if you see algae um, preserved in a rock, then you know that there had to be good lighting conditions because they photosynthesize. Whereas if you're looking at a rock and there is no, no photosynthetic organisms, then that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't light, but it means that there didn't have to be light at this at this specific locality. I was going to say that that's something that I read about at Mistaken Point is the shales that the organisms were found in were deep marine sediments, so like really really fine grained that you would only see in a really low in a really low energy environment like deep marine, and therefore I guess yeah. we used it. This piece of information sort of works the opposite way based on the shales. We know it was so, so deep that there wouldn't have been sunlight. Therefore, we know that the Ediacaran biota at Mistaken Point were not photosynthetic. And therefore, you have to look at other ways that they got their, their nutrients. So sort of, sort of the opposite. Yeah, there was no predation, we think, um, as we were talking about earlier. Um, so we know that they weren't eating each other, probably. We know that there was no light, so they weren't photosynthetic organisms. How else could they be eating? Probably filter feeding. Um, yeah, and that tells you about the, the water. Exactly. And shales are actually really good indicators of um, low energy environment because they're pretty muddy, pretty fine grained. So that's another thing we can look at is wave conditions. We can look at what kind of sediment was there. Is there mud there? Because if there was mud, that probably means that you're not in a super wavy place just because mud... It, it'll just wash away like it can't really settle out somewhere where think if you think about being in Florida on a beach that's not an environment where mud can really be um mm -hmm. so yeah looking at how what, what are the constituents other than the fossils like is it very sandy is it very muddy that's also a really good indicator um and the last big thing is salinity so was the water brackish which is kind of halfway between fresh water and salt water was it hypersaline so saltier than what normal seawater is or was it fresh water or was it normal marine which is which is what we call normal saltiness normal salinity so there are certain organisms such as crinoids that can tell us that and crinoids were they were kind of like almost like stone flowers so they sat on the seafloor they were what we call benthic which means living on the seafloor and they were attached to the seafloor and they were attached by these tiny little discs stacked up to create the stem and then they had kind of like a flower that they would they would point in the direction of where the water where the wave or the current was coming from and then that's how they would feed and so when they died they break up into a million little pieces and what's often preserved are those little disc pieces and when you see that in the record you know that there had to be normal salinity because we know that they could only live in normal saline conditions um, and there are certain organisms that can withstand that can withstand high salinity, such as algae. Um, so stromatolites, which are al mats of algae, almost like a living rock, like like they're it's algal mats that are built and built and built until they're little mounds. Um, we know that those could withstand high salinity because they're just algae. So we can use fossils kind of in that sense. And again, it's not 
that if you don't see it, that it can't be the case. That it doesn't just because mm-hmm. you don't see an algae or a coral preserve, that doesn't mean that there was no light. It just means that there there didn't necessarily need to be light at that location. These things are all just hints to the past environments. So yeah, it's like finding one puzzle mm-hmm. piece in your thousand piece puzzle and putting it together. It's it's pretty much the story of geology. You look at little clues and you make interpretations. <laughs> it's very complicated and it's there's a lot of information to find. And yeah, it's all up to interpretation. So unless you find something that constrains it, such as seeing a photosynthetic coral, you know there had to be light. That's a constraint. It just kind of aids your interpretation into figuring out what the big picture is. And then the end result can be like, okay, we know that this was high wave energy because of this. We know that there was a lot of light because of this. We know that it was normal salinity. We know the age. So therefore, I think that this was, this specific rock is from a coral reef that was relatively shallow um, from this time period, because we're looking at these organisms and this is what I want to do with it. That's kind of the end result of like a pretty general, simple paleo environment reconstruction. You can do, you can run more tests and use different techniques and stuff to create an even more in-depth profile. It's kind of based on what you need it for and how simple you can get it versus how complicated you need to have it. You pretty much answered my next question, which was what are other methods of paleoenvironmental reconstruction other than fossils? But we already talked about, uh, so like combining the fossils with the sediment record and also with geochemical signatures to sort of figure out what's going on. Yeah. And I think a lot of geology in general, like without saying it in those exact words, are really paleoenvironment reconstruction. Because when you're looking at like, for example, geochronology, you're looking at dating a rock to figure out how old it is. And you're using uranium lead dating or carbon dating. You're still making a reconstruction because you're still trying to figure out what happened at the time. What we're talking about now is specifically like in the ocean, using fossils and, and only in sedimentary rocks, um, using those tools. Because, yeah. yeah, this is certainly not the only type of paleoenvironment reconstruction out there. There's many, many types, many, many interviews that you could have in the future. <laughs> well, I just, my previous area of research was in structural geology. And a lot of that is like looking at folded and mangled rocks, sedimentary or otherwise, and then working backwards to what they may have looked like originally. And sort of delineating the the different stresses and strains that went on. Yeah, that's also another really cool application of it. Like, how did this become this like super mangled and folded and fractured rock that I'm seeing now? Mm-hmm. What was it before? And like, how did this even happen? That's kind of also what I'm looking at. Although there's no heat or pressure, it's just um, there is a little heat and pressure at the end of the day, but. Throwing, throwing heat and pressure into the equation for structural geology makes things <laughs> a bit more, I don't want to say complicated because it's all complicated. Uh, frustrating is the word that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just another piece of the puzzle. Another, another little tool that you can use to figure out what the heck happened to your rock. So one more big question I'd like to ask about fossils is, are they applicable at all in industry today? Yeah, absolutely. They are. Um, So fossils occur in sedimentary rocks and in sedimentary rocks, 
that's where the oil and gas is. And oil and gas, as I think is pretty common knowledge, everyone knows, is very lucrative. So obviously people want people want to find the oil and gas so that they can remove it and then they can they can buy a house with it or whatever. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we can use fossils. And again, like I think with industry in general, the most important thing is knowing what you're dealing with. Like, and that goes for everything. Are you when you're building a tunnel, building a road, building a house? What kind of rock am I mining? What kind of my ro- what kind of rock am I am I removing? What kind of rock am I building on? And is it suitable or not? Um, is the ground going to expand and pop my house up onto a hill in 20 years? Is this rock going to erode? And I'm, am I going to be left spending millions of dollars trying to plug the holes that are eroding underneath my house? Like just in general, it's so important to understand what you're working with so that you know if your project is good to go or not. That's the first step before you even break ground. And with fossils, they, again, like we said, they provide insight into into understanding the rock as a whole so with oil and gas Mm -hmm. this could be its whole other episode but we're looking at my project is actually looking at a potential source rock um so so carbonate rocks which are rocks that come from the discarded skeletons of sea animals um they're made of calcium carbonate or CaCO3 um and that's kind of what all of the sand is made up of and that rock is extremely porous so the pores develop and then they kind of get filled with the oil and gas material over a long period of time. And then they get capped off by shales, which are, um, they are not very porous. They're more muddy, fine grained. And so impermeable, impermeable, exactly. And so they kind of cap everything off and that package is what's very lucrative. So looking at the fossils, looking at the units and understanding exactly what you're looking at will tell you whether or not you're looking at a pile of sand that is not useful to you, or if you're looking at a potential reservoir rock or a potential um, source rock, it's it's really important for deciding where to mine because obviously um, removing oil, drilling for oil and gas is pretty expensive. You want to make sure you're doing it in the right place. So um, yeah, that's kind of what it all comes down to. And like I said, that's kind of what my project, that's what the end goal is, is using the geochemistry of these shales to say, okay, we know that this is a potential source rock. What did the depositional environment look like? So that we can take that reconstruction and apply it to a different locality and say, okay, this is what my environment looked like for a good source rock. Let's look at how this environment compares. And if they are the same, does that mean that this new rock that we're looking at could be potential source rock? Um, and so, yeah, just using that and mm-hmm. with, with geology, like it's, what we call uniformitarianism, which is the the present is the key to the past. So what we're looking at now, the processes that are happening now, we assume that they were also happening 100 million years ago or 500 million years ago or 1 billion years ago. Um, And so we use that to kind of figure out what happened in the geological past. And and yeah, it's applicable in our industry today and our modern mining of rocks and our modern deposition of rocks. Yes, the carbonates are definitely a source for oil and gas, as I know about in Alberta and also, of course, in Newfoundland, too. So can you also touch on biostratigraphy and the use of fossils in industry? Yeah. So like I was saying earlier with our indicator fossils, biostratigraphy is extremely important for accurately dating any rock you're looking at. Um, And when it comes to dating, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that we're not looking at very extremely specific numbers like this was this rock was from 5 million whatever and 25 years ago 
you know, we're looking at like, like if you can get within 10 to 50 million years, that's pretty accurate. Like when, when I say, oh, this is how old it is, I'm talking like this is 50 million years old, not to the specific year or the specific day. And that's really important in understanding geological time because there's just so much time. Like people don't understand how much a billion is or how much 4.6 billion is. It's impossible to accurately date something down to the year. Like we're looking on a scale of millions of years here. So like I was touching on with the, with the periods and the epochs, like epochs are, epochs are like pretty accurately dated. So here I'm looking at stuff that's like a couple million years apart, but still like that's a lot of years. Like think about how long humans have been around not even 1 million. It's, it's pretty marginal. Yeah. Let me, let me get, let me circle back to biostratigraphy. So when we're looking at biostratigraphy, we're looking at dating things as accurately as possible. And in terms of biostratigraphy, we use indicator fossils, like I discussed earlier to look at exactly what epoch they were from, because that can be really important for the grand scheme of whatever mm -hmm. you're looking at. Um, alternatively, you can also do carbon dating. So the half-life of carbon is 5,730 years. And so that's not very long in terms of geological time, but that is a really long time in terms of, in terms of life and in terms of dating, dating fossils and dating, dating things that used to be alive. <laughs> so we can look at the carbon half-life in order to accurately date things. And that would be a lot more accurate, like more to the, to the tens or even the ones. Yeah. And then uh, once you figure out when the fossils were from, then you can use those, like you were mentioning the, uh, the pencil organisms, you can, you know, start looking for specific graptolites in order to constrain time. So. Yeah. Those are really good. It's what we call biostratigraphic markers. Like I said, if they appear in your unit and you know how old your fossil is and you know how old your unit is. Um, and the more constrained that that can be, the better, the better, the more accurate your data is. So fossils are more than just fun to look at. Yeah. And they're also more than just dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> so the last question that I want to ask is, are fossils rare? Fossils are not very rare in general. It depends on what you're looking for. Like if you go digging in your backyard, you're probably not going to find a T-Rex bone. Although if you go over to our other podcast, Backyard Geology, hosted by Dr. Chris Spencer, then you might hear of some stories where people actually did dig in their backyard and find something really crazy and cool. But yeah, that's not the norm for in terms of finding like big dinosaur bones. Like when people say, oh, I'm digging up fossils, that's what you think of. That's not really all what all that fossils are. Um, if you go to the beach and you pick up a little shell, um, that would eventually turn into a fossil. Um, it's not a fossil when you're holding it, when you pick up a shell on the beach, but um, we see those exact same things, those exact shells, um, which might be a gastropod or a brachiopod or a bivalve. We see those exact things, um, but much, much older and preserved in the fossil record. So depending on where you mm -hmm. look, you need to be looking in the right type of rock. So if you're looking in a metamorphic or an igneous rock, you probably won't get too many fossils. But if you're looking in a sandstone or yeah, a carbonate rock, then, then fossils are, are really not hard to come by. Um, like I said, it really depends on yeah. what you're looking at and what you're looking for. Yeah, I was going to say like crinoids in southern Ontario are like literally everywhere, but you have to be knowing what you're looking for. You know, those those little discs that were part of the stem, you can find them anywhere. Yeah, once your eyes are once your eyes are tuned to it, like they're literally everywhere. Like at Queens, where I did my undergrad, our geology building, Miller Hall, 
there were steps leading up to it. And yeah, there's like a bunch of crinoid stems in there. And I was like, wow, what the heck? I thought this was concrete. It looked like concrete, but Kingston is the city of limestone. Everything there is made of limestone because there's a ton of, of limestone all in there, as I'm sure here you might know that. Yeah, it's just chock full of fossils everywhere. <laughs> I am definitely familiar with the fossils in Southern Ontario. And I think there's a lot of this, a lot of exposure of that on the traveling geologist social media pages, but like for listeners, basically Ontario, you have the Canadian shield, which is all, you know, these heavily deformed metamorphic rocks, a lot of which are very old, but then just in Southern Ontario, you have all this sedimentary cover rock from about the Paleoz- from the Paleozoic period. From the Ordovician, at least in Kingston. In the realm of four to 400 and f- sorry, 400 to 450 million years ago. But there are. And in terms of life, that was, that was like pretty much all life was in the ocean. Like the Devonian period is really when plants started to develop. Um, Like if you're on a beach in Southern Ontario, you have, you know, the rocks of the beach. And then you also have all the rocks that were sort of eroded into the lakes or whatever and washed up onto the beach. And you can find so many fossils. But for example, on the West Coast in Vancouver, if you're on the beach, it's like mostly all igneous rocks. So you find these sort of round polished bits of granite and diorite and stuff like that. And there are not fossils there. So it really depends on who you are. Like here in Newfoundland, there's tons of fossils. Like we talked about, we obviously have Mistaken Point, which is a huge Ediacaran site. I have a bunch of friends that are doing um, Ediacaran fossil studies on on the Bonavista Peninsula, which is um, a couple hour drive away from St. John's. Um, yeah, there's what we, it's um, Bell Island is kind of, it's like 20 minutes away. You have to take a ferry to get there. But um, I actually worked in at Memorial in the fossil lab. Like I took a job helping them organize fossils and catalog fossils over the summer. And so many, so many fossils were from, um, were from Bell Island. They have a lot of Rhizophycus, which is a resting burrow for trilobites. Um, it's basically like a little, um, I don't know if this is appropriate for the pocket. It looks like a little butt, <laughs> a little butt in the sand. <laughs> and, and it's where trilobites rested. Um, we also had a lot of Cruziana, which is similar to Rhizophycus. So Rhizophycus is the resting position and Cruziana is the moving traces. So you can see like, you can see like little like leg marks from them scuttling along the seafloor. Um, there's a ton of fossils here. It really depends on where you are in the world. Canada. Yeah. So the answer, are fossils rare? No, but it like totally depends where you are and if you have the eye for it. And I think kind of anywhere, like if you go somewhere, it's not going to be 100% metamorphic rock or 100% igneous rock. Mm-hmm. Like even in Vancouver, yeah, there's always, I think you could probably just do a quick Google search and find a locality with like some nice fossils there, although they might be deformed. It is like part of the, the Cordillera. So mountains Mountain. mountains cause a few problems yeah <laughs> i absolutely love talking about fossils with you and paleo environmental reconstruction i am a fossil enthusiast but i am not a fossil pro so i thoroughly enjoyed that i know this wasn't a specific bonus episode on mistaken point but i hope that listeners could enjoy our discussion on paleo environmental reconstruction because I mean, the fossils at Mistaken Point were so, so important in constructing the Ediacaran period, which is, you know, fairly elusive since, as we said, we don't have a lot of stuff preserved from the Precambrian or a lot of life, at least. 
Yeah. It's cool to, it's cool to look at what life was like before the Cambrian explosion, because we know so much about the Cambrian explosion because that's when things started to be preserved, but there's no way that we went from a single celled bacteria to boom, you have a, an exoskeleton creature that's mm-hmm. just like running around the seafloor, like eating other random organisms. Like it didn't start out that way. And it's really cool to get insight into, into what, what happened before that. And it's not, we don't have a complete picture and I don't know that we ever will, but it's really cool to see. We're working on We're it. We're working on it. Yeah. There's always, there's always room to grow and there's always room to discover stuff. Um, but it's really cool to at least have, like we said, it's essentially frozen in time, the way that they were preserved with rapid burial of under volcanic ash. Um, it's really cool to have that insight. And if anyone, if any listeners are in St. John's, I urge you to go ahead and book a tour at Mistaken Point, because from what I've heard, it's a beautiful hike, beautiful fossils. If you go on a nice day, you might in the summer, you might even see some whales. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think you should do it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Noelle. I always enjoy having enthusiastic discussions about geology, especially if there are fossils involved. I hope listeners enjoy this podcast and learned a bit more about fossils aside from the fact that they are just dinosaurs. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. I could talk about fossils all day. (laughs) So if you're a fossil enthusiast, you know who to contact. Thanks, Noelle. Bye. Bye. Noelle is a fossil lover and has used fossils in her research to reconstruct past environments. Geologists are good at puzzles, and fossils are particularly fun pieces of the puzzle that is Earth's history. As Noelle mentioned, fossils are not as rare as you might think, so keep your eyes peeled next time you find yourself on an outcrop. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your family and friends. Backyard Geology Canada edition is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Travelling Geologist.